Happy Mother's Day to you. You know, there's, um, there's a lot to Mother's Day, and I know that uh, sometimes um, it can be a, a tremendously happy time, and sometimes it can be a not-so-happy time. But I also recognize that, you know, I, I want to uh, take some time this morning to honor that special group uh, of individuals who are among us today that um, the, the evidence of their effort is hopefully seen in our lives because they have a tough job and they don't always get appreciated for that and a lot of times it has very little rewards. Hopefully, except for the end result which is seen in our lives, hopefully. I mean, that's what's important is the fact that moms, you matter. You fill our lives with such wonderful things. You gave us life. You brought us into this world. You nurtured us. You taught us. You loved us. You poured into us from our very first breath. And moms, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for each of us. You know, it's a, it's a great thing. It's a tremendous responsibility. It's a wonderful opportunity that God gives us to be parents. I was reminded of that last night. My grandchildren came, and they were there at our house. And I don't always appreciate everything that they do. But my wife let me know I need to appreciate it more. And I'm thankful for Tracy being willing to, to say that because I don't want to miss the opportunity. I don't want to let it go by. I want to appreciate that. I want to I take the time and enjoy that. I want to be fully in every moment, if you will. And I know that that's, that's not always easy to do because we have a lot of things going on. We have a lot of things on our mind. You know, to take the time to say thank you, to take the time to appreciate a job well done. You know, someone said that the, the hard part of being a mother is giving birth, but the harder part is showing up each day. I think there's some truth to that. You know, a woman that was asked, she said, if, if you had it to do all over again, would you, would you have children? She said, yes, just not the same ones. You know, we live in context of these generations that have come before us. We literally are the, the offspring of our, of our forebears, you know. We, we are a product of them. And uh, we also live in context of those generations that come after us. And I think all of this is, is very important. You know, referring to a young woman who had who had become queen of a powerful nation in a, a critical time in history, Esther 4.14 says, for such a time as this. Mom, I believe that's you. For such a time as this. See, every generation has been brought into existence for such a time as this. Each one of us. I mean, every, every generation is important in God's plan and in that plan and the purpose being fulfilled every generation see this is crucial because being a part of God's plan and purpose requires being 
connected relationally to God. If we're going to be a part of His plan and His purpose, we got to be connected to Him. See, we cannot do what we were designed to do unless we are connected to God. We won't do it. But follow me now. Each generation, each generation is important to God. Each one of the generations, our generation is important to God. The generations before us were important to God. The generations that come after us are equally important to God. See, each generation must humbly learn from the previous generation. And it must sacrificially teach the next generation. We all have that responsibility. See, the idea of a generation gap, I believe, has demonic roots. And I believe that would be part of Satan's plan to destroy the continuity of God's people. He doesn't want us teaching the next generation. He doesn't want us learning from the previous generation. He's trying to break it up. So when we, when we take that responsibility seriously, learning from the previous generation, sacrificially teaching the next generation, then what we're doing is we're helping uh, in God's plan of continuity among His people. See, each generation must sacrifice, must sacrifice time. Time and convenience and money to invest in future generations. But you see, investing doesn't mean that they have to look just like me. Investing means that we're releasing them to be what God has for them for such a time as this. You know, it's going to take some real built-in, I want to call it metal or steel, in a Christian's life to live in the darkness of the world that is coming. And we've got to be preparing for that now. It took real steel to live in the darkness of a world that was willing to... to um, to, to set themselves apart and declare that they were going to begin a new nation. A new nation with Christ as the head. It took real metal for those to put down the, the, the enemy in World War II. And it's going to take no less than that kind of conflict, that kind of fight, to see Christianity and God's people moving forward in this year and in this generation. Each generation has its battles to fight. And folks, we need to be passing that torch on. We need, to be, we need to be equipping them. And parents, I want you to know, you have a great responsibility. God has entrusted you with these children. He has entrusted you with these, this, this malleable, this, this formable, um, you know, you know concrete if you will it's it's not set yet and you have the opportunity to mold it and fashion it in a way that honors God parents this is a great responsibility and for children to have good examples for the uh, to for them to be good examples to their peers they have to have good examples from the previous generation
You know, it's amazing to me because a lot of times when we get together and we do uh, premarital counseling, talking with couples that are wanting to unite in marriage, I talk to them about their family of origin, where they came from. What were their parents like? What was their parents' marriage like? What was their parents' faith? And the reason I say that is because they only know what's been modeled for them. That's, the, that's what the, you've given them, is the model. So when they see a good model in us, it gives them tools in their toolbox later on when they're working with their spouse and when they're working with their family. You see, in our passage today, we're going to be in 2 Timothy, and in our passage today, Timothy was nurtured by two previous generations. See, if we neglect to pass on the next generation what we've learned, it'll die with us. You know, in Psalm 145, it says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. See, we believe here at Memorial that families, that children are an important part of what God is doing today. We believe that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a full-time children's minister. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a full-time youth pastor. We believe that God is working in and through these young people, raising up a generation of people that love Him, that are all in with Him, that are discipled, that know what it means to be a follower of Christ. See, J. Edgar Hoover former FBI director, he said this. He said, given discipline, young people will learn self-discipline. Given discipline, young people will learn self-discipline. Given training, they will learn to live useful lives. In almost every case, the failure to develop character is directly attributable to a lack of proper influence and guidance in the home. That's big. It's our responsibility to train our children. It's not the school district's job. It's not the church's job. It's the parents' job to instruct and train children in the home. See, Christian families today do not fare much better than the families in the world. I'm about to give you some hard statistics. 40% of all children in America, 40% go to bed without a father in the home to tuck them in. 14%, one in seven, 14% of all 13 year olds have had sex. One in seven. 33% of all babies in America are born to unwed mothers. That's one third. You ready for this one? 
83% of teens say that moral truth depends on the situation. 83%. You know, I was a little bit skeptical to use these statistics. Not because they aren't true, but because I know how we Christians will react. Normally, when we hear disparaging statistics like that, we have a tendency to wring our hands together in despair over the, the, these disturbing numbers. But we need to stop wringing our hands and start doing something about it. And it begins in the home. And I'm presenting these facts because it's important that we know the truth. And the challenge that is before us as it relates to discipling and training our children. Because you see, God, our God, my God, is not the least bit overwhelmed at the state of the world today. We serve a mighty God. He knows exactly where we are at. You know, if you're like me, around my house, there's always something that needs Fixing. There's always something that needs to be repaired or, or improved upon. And our home is, in many ways, a work in progress. <laughs> We're working on it. But I would say that's kind of like our lives, too. They're a work in progress. Individually. But our homes are that way. And so is the church. We are a work in progress. But you see, what I want you to understand is this. We have to encourage our children to trust the Word of God. We have to encourage them to trust the Word of God. We need to build faith into our kids. We need to tell them about God who will be there for them when they need Him. When we tell a Bible story, we need to emphasize the faithfulness of God. Because my God is faithful. He has never let me down. He has never left me alone. He's always been there for me. We need to emphasize that, the faithfulness of God. We, just, we have to teach our children to know, to know God. Not to know about God, but to know God. To have a relationship with Him. To seek Him and to, to seek knowledge and wisdom. But don't let that knowledge settle for, for a level of knowledge that gets them a decent paying job. Just so they can live a comfortable life. That's not the purpose of knowledge. That's not the purpose of God's wisdom. See, lo learning and growing should be a life goal of every person. Learning and growing should be a life goal, not only for us, but for our children. But it's really hard to teach them something we don't believe ourselves. And many times I see people who have given up, who have given up on learning anything new, having a growth mindset, moving beyond where they are today spiritually. Well, I don't want to put forth the effort. I'm just going to kick it into neutral and coast for a while. You see, that's not good enough. That doesn't work. 
We've got to intentionally be growing and moving forward with God. Following Christ in obedience. Giving our best efforts. Because it matters. We can't just get lazy. Oh, but the church, the church in America has gotten lazy. We've gotten comfortable. We're going to look this morning at the spiritual legacy that a mom can leave in the life of a child. And that the faith that continues is by her passing her life into and through our life. You know, I'm, I'm very thankful for my mom. She taught me so much early on in life. I remember as a young boy, at the age of five and six, learning the books of the Bible. Fifty years later, I still got it. It's still there. It's still there. She implanted in me that. My mother is the one who led me to Jesus Christ. I was asking questions about it. I was, I was wondering about Jesus and what he did for me and, and what it means to, to have forgiveness of my sin. And she was the one that sat down and explained it to me. She's the one who took the time to explain what the gospel is about. She's the one that took the time to walk me in a sinner's prayer. And I stand before you today because of the efforts of my own mother. And how thankful I am that she invested in my life that kind of concern about spiritual matters. We're going to read in Timothy. 2 Timothy, excuse me. Chapter 1. I want to read three or four verses here. It says in, in verse 5 and following, it says, for Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me. Join, excuse me, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. When I read this, I see and I connect with what Paul is saying about Timothy, about his mother, about his grandmother, about the heritage. And you see, our mothers give us a learned faith. Look at verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. See, Paul recognized a family trait. He saw something in Timothy's family. He saw something in Timothy that, that hearkened back to his mother and grandmother. Not in physical traits. He may have looked like them. But it was 
in spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. (laughs) Wow. He saw that in Timothy, the young disciple. The spiritual maturity that somewhere along the line he had been trained in things spiritual. He had been trained in what it means to know God. I think that's huge. Because a sincere faith was in his life. It was also traced back to his mother and his grandmother. Come on, Dad, where are we at? Where are we at in this? Because we got to be something more than a, than a donor. we got to be somebody who's all in. And we don't see that a whole lot. You know, this word sincere says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. In the Greek, that word sincere also means, it literally means, without wax. Sincere. It means without wax. You know, no airs, no polish. It's just the genuine article. It's the real deal. This sincere faith, faith that could be tested and proven genuine. In other words, it's not going to be like something that, oh, he's living one day uh, on sun, living one way on Sunday and living a different lifestyle on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. It's the same. It's a sincere faith. It's, it's genuine. You see, a learned faith is a faith that instills respect for the Scriptures. Follow me. This is important stuff. Because when we have a respect for the Scriptures, when we teach our children to trust in God's Word, what we are doing is we are creating a foundation of faith. A foundation of faith so that they have something to to tie into. So they have something to build upon. We create a foundation of faith when we instill a a trust, a respect for the Scriptures. Look over in in chapter 3. Paul continues, and when when he writes this to Timothy, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become uh, convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood. You learn the sacred writings, and that is what helps you to build that foundation, that spiritual foundation. You need to understand something else. is God's Word establishes moral absolutes. We don't like to hear that. That's why 83% of teens say that that, that morality is situational. It depends on the situation. No, it doesn't. Sin will always be sin, will always be sin, and it's sin for everyone, for all times, in all epochs, in all ages, it is sin. It will always be sin. It can't be anything else. We don't like that. Because we're sinful beings. And we want to do what we want to do. 
But in teaching your children, in teaching your children to respect Scripture, it will establish moral absolutes. And it, it, you know, when we respect the Scripture, we internalize knowledge. We begin to, we begin to see how it fits. And, and, and through God's Word, it, it gives us the wisdom to make good choices. What a blessing that is. See, our children need to come to faith in Christ. Folks, Christianity is not hereditary. You can't be born into it. Christianity is, is a relationship with Jesus Christ that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to say this. It's learned. It's learned. See, when mothers model genuine faith, an environment is created that motivates children to a similar faith. I mean, this is, you know, you think about a mother's priorities. A mother's priorities ought to be about her children's souls, not just their clothes. The salvation of their souls, her her, her priority ought to be about her children's eternal life, not just success in life. I mean, we've got to see these priorities. Her, they, they need to be about her children's relationship with Jesus, not necessarily popularity in the world and being accepted by everyone else. Her priority ought to be her child standing with God, not on her social status. A mother's priorities ought to be her child's spirituality. Not necessarily just their intellectual, their musical, or their athletic accomplishments. See, Timothy acquired his, this faith because he had seen it modeled during his life. He saw it in his mother. He saw it in his grandmother. It had dwelt, you know. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mom, the, world, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. That's what Timothy saw. He saw that this faith living among, uh, with him and it, it was taking up resonance in his mother and in his grandmother. It affected everything they did. And it was evident in every move they made. Folks, this kind of faith is, in, is contagious. When you have that kind of faith to live it out, and I think this is, this is really important as well. Because, you know, you think about someone like Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham, he, he wrote a book called Rebel with a Cause. And in that book, he says this. He was sent to a boarding school as a young man. He said, whatever was expected of the student body, I wanted to do the opposite. I got a kick out of staying one step ahead of the law. You know, if, if Billy Graham was the ultimate preacher, then Franklin made a really good stab at being the ultimate preacher's kid. Fighting, you know, high-speed car chases, firearms, rock music, hard liquor. He says this, he says, I didn't want to identify with Christianity. 
I prayed and I attended church, but I found that the things of the world were pleasurable and fun, and I didn't like being around Christian people. Life became empty, something missing, emptiness that could not be explained, no joy, no fulfillment. He said he decided that you couldn't live in the middle ground, that he had to go one way or the other. And he said he was, he was wanting to uh, look at that and, and either follow Christ or reject him. And he was in a motel room one night and he read Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He said, I put my cigarette out and I got down on my knees beside my bed and I settled the matter for all of eternity. I think this is huge because we would say, how many millions of people has Billy Graham touched? His preaching God's word. Franklin's major influence was not his father who was off preaching crusades. But the difference was made because of this spiritually strong mother named Ruth Graham whose parents were missionaries. And she had developed that faith. They were missionaries in China. See, our mothers give us a learned faith. They also give us a living faith. In verse 6 and and 7 it says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh, to rekindle, to, to start up again, to stir it up, the gift of God which is in you. I mean, Paul put some definition to the sincere faith that Timothy and his family exhibited because he would say that a living faith is an active faith. A living faith is an active faith. Kindle afresh the gift of God. Is your gift working in the body of Christ today? Are you using the gifts that God has given you? Are you using your spiritual gift? I mean, a ministry which is an extension of the impact of others in your life. How have others, how are you using what others have poured into you? Or are we? Are we waiting for someone else to come and use their gifts for us? You know, we all have that responsibility. A a living faith is an active faith and it's a fearless faith. I mean, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's not given us a spirit spirit of timidity. It's like the little boy that was being tucked in by his mom and there was this violent thunderstorm outside. And he said, Mommy, would you sleep with me tonight? Would you stay here in my bed with me? And she said, No, I've got to go in the other room and sleep with Daddy. said, well, the big sissy. <laughs> Fearless may be meaning that you're willing to step out in obedience when circumstances might be intimidating. When circumstances might be intimidating. Think about this. Real Christianity is quite scary. For most of us, we just want $3 of God, please. 
Because that's all I can handle. Real Christianity can be quite scary. I mean, when you think about this, ministry can be downright frightening. Whether you're going to a hospital and visiting somebody you may not even know. When you're knocking on a door and talking to somebody about something. When you're living it out in front of other people. And you know that they are going to judge you anyway. It's quite scary. I mean, think about it. Tithing may scare you to death. You may be saying, Ridge, there's no way that I can do that. Give 10% of my increase to God. I know when we started going to church as a, as a married couple, Tracy said, man, church is expensive. But it's because we were tithing. I can't imagine not tithing now. To me, I want to give back to God. I want to give him a little of that crunch and munch to share with me. The things that he gives me, the things that he blesses me with. The, the wonderful gifts. I want to give back to Him because my heart is for Him. I mean, what about witnessing? Witnessing can be scary. What if they turn me away? What if they, don't, what if they call me a fanatic? What if they call me a, a Jesus freak? What if they do something like that? You know, standing alone when the world around you is caving in to immorality. I mean, Stephen King couldn't write this stuff. It's horrifying. When you think about this, a sincere faith is a faith that has the power, the love, and the self-discipline. It's not a, 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 a faith based on fear. A sincere faith demonstrates itself in a life that is lived. A life that is lived. And I want to give you three descriptions here of life choices we face every day. One of those life choices is God's power or our weakness. And many times we settle for our weakness because we can't handle God's power. We can't control it. What about sacrificial love or self-centered lifestyles? What about spiritually lazy lives floating downstream like a dead fish with the world or making the tough choices to do the will of God? Power, love, discipline. These describe a live, living faith. Our mothers also give us a lasting faith. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You see, Paul sees in Timothy's life the requirement to answer the call to follow in the same path that he and the Lord Jesus have taken. They've both taken that. And I want to say that a person who does not have a sincere faith is not a candidate to be used by God very much. If your faith is not the real deal, if you're just out there superficially going to church, not really in, enjoying the relationship between you and God, not really investing much, not really doing much with it, 
If it's just something you add to your already busy schedule, God is not going to use you very much. We say, well, I want to be useful to God. Then you've got to get all in. You've got to get all in. See, our mothers gave us a lasting faith, and a lasting faith will instill a desire to minister to others. Over in Acts 16, verse 1, Paul writes this, or Luke writes this, excuse me. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. What Paul saw in Timothy... When he looked at Timothy, what he saw was a young man who was a believer, who was a disciple, who had a good reputation among the people and was available. And he said, I want that young man to come with us so that he can minister as well. But you see, I would contend that that ministry began in the home. And it was something that Timothy learned from his mother and his grandmother. It wasn't something that he just picked up when the, when the itinerant, when, the, when the, the, the missionary come walking by. It wasn't that he decided, oh, I want to go be a missionary. He had been ministering a long time in that area. Three qualities that are passed down here from mother to son. Strong believer, he was referred to as a disciple, Timothy had a good reputation and he was available to go. See, commitment to ministry does not just happen, does not just develop if it's not encouraged in the home. You need to give your children opportunities to minister to other people. Don't expect the church to do that. Because what you do at home is what's going to stick with them. The model that you give them is what's going to stick with them. You know, our mothers, they demonstrated more than any other group of people on the earth what it means to give up your own rights for the life of another. I mean, Jesus said it this way in John 15, 13. He said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. I've got one story of sacrifice and then I'll be done. There's a fellow by the name of Solomon Rosenberg. And he was placed in a Nazi labor camp with his wife and two children and his mother and his father. In the labor camp, the rules were very simple. You do your work. As long as you can do your work, you're permitted to live. When you can no longer do your work and you're too weak to work, then you're exterminated. He watched his mother and his father both march off to their deaths, and he knew that the next one would be his youngest son, David, because David had always been a frail child. Every evening when he would come to the barracks, he would search for the faces of his wife and children, especially David, and he would thank God when he saw that they saw another day of life. Then one day he returned. He didn't see those familiar faces. 
And he finally discovered his oldest son who was huddled over in a corner. And he said, Joshua, tell me it's not true. He said, it's true, Papa. Today, David was not strong enough to do his work. So they came for him. Where's your mother? When they came for David, he was afraid and he cried. And Mama said, there's nothing to be afraid of, David. And she took his hand and she went with him. Well, that true story may be gut-wrenching. We see the picture of sacrifice that moms make all the time. I mean, that scenario is lived out many different ways, many different days, many different families all around us by people just like we're sitting next to today. That's why we honor them today on Mother's Day. Thanks, Mom, for being the kind of mother who has been willing to sacrifice so that we can become who we are today. How grateful we should be for our mothers and all those who are being like Christ when they are willing to sacrifice themselves for our benefit. The reality is that we will never be or become like Christ if we're not willing to follow Him. So mom, dad, young person, we all must acknowledge Jesus Christ. We all must acknowledge that he gave his life for us. We have to accept him. We have to put our faith and our trust in him. We have to accept his sacrifice for our sin. And praise God, I'm not going to get what I deserve. Praise God for you that you're not going to get what you deserve when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus. I mean, Jesus Christ, He's given us every reason to trust and to accept Him and to follow Him today. Have you done that? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Because on that day when we stand before the Almighty, the only thing that is going to save us is the blood of Christ that we've received for the cleansing of our sins. The rest of it, it's going to be like filthy rags. He's got no interest in that. Have you done that?